Welcome back to the Mission Story Slam podcast, brought to you by PWP Video. I'm Michael Schweisheimer, the executive producer at PWP Video and Mission Story Slam. We started Mission Story Slam to share the stories of the organizations that we serve at PWP Video. Those include nonprofits, B corporations, triple bottom line companies, and sustainable organizations. People on a mission to make the world a better place. We gather at Yards Brewing in Philadelphia and pick the names of 10 storytellers out of a hat, and they compete for a $250 donation to their favorite nonprofit. The audience also selects a crowd favorite for a $100 donation, and we videotape their stories for sharing on social media and with friends and supporters. This podcast is about the story behind those stories. What motivates someone to tell a story in front of an audience, and how did they choose the story they were going to tell, and what was the experience like? And we get to learn about the storytellers themselves. Mission Story Slam has been very lucky to have an amazing MC in Chris Satulo. I have no idea how Chris manages his schedule. He constantly traverses the state of Pennsylvania in his work as project director for Draw the Lines PA, fighting against gerrymandering, or as he calls it, the bug in the operating system of democracy. But somehow, he has continued to show up at Yards to MC for us every single time. Is it just because we buy you beer? That's a big part of it, but there are other reasons. Well, we appreciate it. Um, Chris is also a veteran journalist and civic engagement leader. He's been a news executive at the Philadelphia Inquirer and at WHYY. In addition to his work with the Committee of 70 and Draw the Lines PA, he's also a co-founder of the Penn Project for Civic Engagement at the University of Pennsylvania. You don't have to MC today, Chris, but I really appreciate your taking the time to come be a guest on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. Do you have any recollection how we suckered you into becoming the MC of a story slam in the first place? Uh, I think the person to blame on my end is my colleague at the Committee of 70, Lauren Cristella, who I think you know. And uh, she's very persuasive, and she said these guys would like that. The other reason is, you know, I've been going to um, the Moth Story Slams at XBN for a while. Um, really admire the work Eric Michael Thomas does hosting those, know him a little bit, was jealous of how great he is at it. So I figured, I, you know, given the opportunity, I had to give it a try. That's cool. Has it been... Uh been living up to your hopes and expectations? Oh, I look forward to everyone. It's a great time. Um, really, the only key issue I have is the fact that we do it at Yards, and the beer is awfully good, but it's hard to keep all the balls in the air, remember everything you're supposed to say, particularly with the microscopically detailed scripts that uh, your colleague Dave Winston gives me. <laughs> yeah. And so I can really only handle one Yards Pale Ale, and I can't go to any of the heavier alcoholic content ones. Yeah, you if, do have to watch those specials, if, yeah. Yeah, if I, if I want to make it through the evening uh, completely unscarred, I have to be careful. Speaking about those stories, are there, are there any favorites that kind of come to mind that you've heard um, after hosting a few story slams at Mission Story Slam? Uh, at the last story slam, and I'm not going to be able to summon the name immediately from memory, um, there was a young woman who talked about her work doing sort of environmental cleanup all over Pennsylvania. And it was a great story of how she does her work, but most importantly, how she learned to relate to people from central Pennsylvania who are so different from her in terms of political outlook and, and values and attitudes. Uh, that resonated with me because she told the story very well. The work she does is really important. And the work I do with Draw the Lines has some of that same flavor. Um, okay. Trying to get out of the Philadelphia bubble and understand how the rest of the state really lives and thinks. So I thought she was great. Um, 
that's the one from the last one that I remember best. Um, there were a couple of very moving ones um, from the very first one we did about a woman telling a story of her history of uh, spousal abuse that, that I think was the winner. That was the winner that was, time. It yeah. was a very good one. And the other one that sort of still lives in my heart is a beautifully told story by a young woman talking about her grandfather. Yes. And it ended up being the story of why um, she works with ALS. And that was, it was a nicely prepared surprise at the end. It was a true story. And that was the payoff at the end. Understand that her relationship with her grandfather is why she does what she does. That was beautifully done. You know, I didn't, I didn't uh, think about this, but with your background in journalism, is there something that's appealing about the fact that a story slam is always supposed to be a true story. It could be your version of truth, but it is supposed to be based on reality. Um, yeah, I, for the entire time I was um, in journalism, formally working in newsrooms, one of my sort of missions, one of my struggles sometimes with the staff I was leading or working with was to get them to understand that rightly understood they were in the storytelling business, not the news business. Um, and increasingly over the time I worked in newsrooms, it became so much more about storytelling. Uh, I worked uh, with a truly great editor named Steve Lovelady at the Inquirer. And uh, he, in trying to get the people at the Inquirer to be storytellers, once he got up and gave a presentation and asked them if they watched at that time, L.A. Law was like one of the top, you know. Sort sure, of that was a big show. They remarked about shows. And he goes, well, you know, where do you think L.A. Law gets its plots. Every one of them comes from a newspaper story. What he was doing was taking the raw material that newspapers at that time were tending to almost waste in inverted pyramid or overly detailed fashion and not telling the story as a story of human emotion and struggle that illuminated some policy point or some other point, but just telling it in that traditional way. And he was trying to get the inquire, and he was magnificent at it. Um, to tell stories that were actually stories, not just, you know, not just strings of facts, strings of facts and um, things that forgot to put the actual human emotion behind whatever the facts and the policies involved were. So uh, I sort of came up in the Enquirer when we were getting really good at that. So and that's what I tried to bring to the staff at WHYY that um, even if it was 40 seconds, which is what a lot of the, the news blurbs on uh, um, public radio are, that it's important to get some sense of story in there. You know, the structures can be condensed or they can be expanded, but it's important to, to bring the structures to life. Do you think that um, in an era where journalists are being assailed consistently, that that becomes a little bit more fraught to have that storytelling approach to news, or do you think it's important that we stay there with the narrative so that people pay attention? I think if you look at the, some of the greatest journalism that, say, the New York Times, the Post, or online sites um, have done, um, the stuff the New Yorker's doing, the, the story Jane Mayer just wrote about the case against Al Franken, they're all using the elements of storytelling. I mean, there's still, you know, if you look at Jane Mayer's story, the thing I loved about that was because she kind of was showing her process a bit in that story. Right. It's like, that's what reporters do. They call everybody. You know, they just don't go with the first thing they get. Um, you know, obviously in a world of Twitter and acceleration and velocity of, of information, that's one of the great threats against journalism is that everybody's looking to be first on Twitter instead of right yeah. um, for posterity. But she kind of showed in that story 
um, you don't just take the first take on anything. You call everybody, and you give everybody a chance, and then you weigh it, and then you really think, and you struggle, and you work to find the right words um, to convey the nuance of a situation. Because human interactions, and that Al Franken with that uh, Leanne Tweedin woman is a classic example. Um, she may have authentically felt what she felt, and that's an important part of the story, but it's not the end of the story. He may have felt that he didn't do what she said, but that's also not the end of the story. The but not truth, just two sides, right? The truth is somewhere in a mysterious in-between, and the struggle of good journalism is to try to describe that mysterious in-between the two polar viewpoints as well as you can and as thoroughly as you can. And you are never going to get it exactly right the first time. That's why it's famously the first draft of history. The first draft of history, right. And that's one reason why I think storytelling that tries to capture the nuance is better than bold, confident proclamation and, and um, of, of conclusion, right? Because a lot of times, first conclusions are wrong conclusions. The thing that I would say that is um, super encouraging to me because what I realize now I fundamentally am is a partisan of storytelling more than journalism per se is that in the you know that in the decline of newspapers and, and broadcast and some of the mistaken paths that in the search for profits that commercial media have taken the last 15 or 20 years they created a vacuum of storytelling and thanks to digital technology um, through story slams, through podcasts, through um, even things like Legacy.com. You know, newspapers don't write staff don't have staffers writing carefully done obituaries anymore. But basically, families and loved ones have stepped up either on Facebook or Legacy.com, and they are telling the story of the person who just died in their own words. But that act of writing something about somebody who just died is a great way of crystallizing. Well. Who were they to you? Who were they to the world? So the, the struggle and the art of storytelling is what helps people um, maybe not find but fix in their minds what the meaning of something was. Have you found in your career as you've been in print journalism and radio journalism and now spending a lot of time telling stories to groups and even with the story slams, is the core of narrative always, always the same or are, does it vary from media to media? Um, the techniques vary. I think that there are different narratives, you know, um, sort of core narratives of, or er narratives that underlie. But there's there's the conflict, and the conflict is resolved either bloodily or, or happily. There's the quest narrative. There's the growing up narrative. Um, there's the facing your own mortality narrative. I think we've heard versions of all those at, at the story slams. And, you know, there's different ways of cliche alert skinning the cat. I can't think of a, a better phrase right now. So, but underlying it are those. And then the other thing that to me is incredibly important, and another thing I, I fought all, when I say fought for all the time in the newsrooms I was in, is stories come alive through detail and the particular. Um, and, I mean, the criticism I'd have of, I mean, anybody who stands up at, you know, uh, a PWP mission story slam is brave. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, all, all the stories have merit. But the ones that don't touch me or get me as much are the ones that sort of skim at the level of generalization and abstraction. Um, even the ones that aren't all that successful. There was one that I think, in the end, had a hard time making its point at the last story slam. But it started out with the story 
of a father and husband waking up and slowly realizing that his house was on fire. Yeah. Um, and that's rooting, you know, whatever point you want to get to in the particular um, and in the detail. Um, there's a lot of research. Berger at Penn is one of the best people at this, at figuring out what makes stories contagious or what makes them sticky. Um, and to me, it's the particular detail that makes it sticky. And, my, you know, whether it works or not, for people who hear it, for me, I'm trying to tell a story about why I'm working on Draw the Lines. I'm trying to tie it back to the the, the, the model and the example my father gave me. Sure. Um, but I rooted it in a ping pong table. Well, you know, let, let's use that as an excuse to listen to the introduction from that story and hear a bit more about that ping pong table. One day last month, I called up uh, a person I worked with back in my days at WHYY because I wanted to ask him whether he'd be interested in doing a little freelance work for this new John of mine, Draw the Lines. So I had to describe the project to him, and I admitted to him, this is pure Ferenc Capra. This is Mr. Smith goes to Washington idealism with a little high-tech angle to it. And he thought for a minute, and he said, you never change, Satulo. Still trying to save the world. What is it with you? That's a good question. What is it with me? When I try to think of the answer, I realize it goes back to a ping pong table. That uh, ping pong table sat in the basement of the house where I grew up, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And when I say basement, I mean basement. Do not think gadget-laden man cave with two beer tap taps and surround sound. Don't even think 60s-era knotty pine paneling. We're talking exposed pipes and rafters, electric wires hanging down, a big old gas furnace sitting right in the middle, one ratty old couch against the wall, and that ping pong table. Now that ping pong table and all its chipped forest green glory was the scene of a number of raucous ping pong games featuring me, my brother, my friends, and very much my dad who thought he could beat all comers in ping pong. But every once in a while, the ping pong paddles and the balls would be put away and that table, that green rectangle, would be transformed into Campaign Central. You see, my father was very involved in union politics and local politics. So whenever there was election going, and it seemed like there was always an election going, that ping pong table would groan under a burden of campaign flyers and literatures and palm cards and buttons and yard signs and all the paraphernalia of a 20th century political campaign. And when 1467 Middleton Road was on campaign footing, the number one question that ruled my existence was, have you stuffed those envelopes yet? Because in my father's view, there was no TV, there was no ice cream, there was no touch football up at the park until every one of those flyers had been folded and carefully stuffed in an envelope which had been carefully and properly addressed so he could send them out the next day so that our candidate could win. My dad really believed in teaching responsibility and work ethic. Now, I've never been sure whether to call my father a first-generation immigrant or second-generation. You see, he was conceived in Sicily, gestated on the boat over, and was born just after his mother arrived uh, at Ellis Island. 
They ended up in Cleveland where he grew up the son of a stonemason, went to East Tech High School, and was trained as a newspaper printer. You see, ink is in my veins. When World War II came, he signed up, Army Quartermaster Corps, served in Europe, went ashore in France uh, after D-Day, thank goodness, uh, but did see a little of the Battle of the Bulge, I think. My father never, ever, ever talked about the war, except to talk about courting the British girl who after VE Day, he brought back to Ohio to be his wife. After that, their lives were the classic post-war upward story. College on the GI Bill, a little brick house in the suburbs bought with a VA loan, two kids, and a life devoted to faith, family, and work. And one other thing, my father was totally focused on active citizenship. You pay attention, you show up, you do the work, you learn the issues, you get out the vote, you make sure you leave the place better than you found it. That was his creed. Now, my dad uh, probably never would have been a fan of the rock band Journey, but he really did live according to their most famous lyric, don't stop believing. Now, though he was well steeped in practical politics, as an election prognosticator, he was the most wild-eyed optimist you've ever seen. An example, 1972, Nixon versus McGovern. It's two days before the election. My dad calls me up and says, I'll bet you $10 McGovern wins. <laughs> now, I hated to take advantage of the old man like that, but I was in college and I needed pizza money, so I took the bet. For those of you who slept through American history class, that one ended up Nixon 49, McGovern 1. So he wasn't a very good prognosticator, but what he was was good at hanging on to his ideals. He clung to them, he worked his ass off to bring them to life, and he never stopped believing that if you work hard enough, someday your efforts will be repaid. So when I entered journalism, uh, I brought that idealism with me. I brought the idealism that he instilled in me of being an absolute sap for democratic ideals. And then I went to work in Pennsylvania. <laughs> for my many sins, God punished me by giving me a career where almost every day of my life I had to cover the politicians of Pennsylvania. Now, I personally believe when I started, I was part of the Watergate, all the president's men generation of journalists. I entered a newsroom believing it was the job of young reporters in khaki suits to save the republic. I still do. But working where I worked and covering the people I worked, I had to like shove aside my idealism a little bit and make space in my brain for a certain amount of cynicism. And I remain skeptical to this day about the people who tend to run for office and hold office, particularly in this state. I've seen too much negativity, too much corruptibility, too much ignorance in high office um, to be a complete naive. But none of that has ever wiped away my inherited belief in the basic idea of democracy. I still believe this. Government of the people, by the people, and for the people is the best freaking idea human beings have ever come up with to live together. So that's why I draw the lines. Uh, I just want, just once, my adopted state to have a democracy that works like my dad taught me it should. Just once, I'd like to see that. 
So that's why when I should be collecting Social Security and hugging my grandchildren, I'm slogging around this great commonwealth of ours, Altoona, Elquipa, and Allentown, talking to groups of 10, 20, and 30 people, working with Grace Palladino back there to recruit teachers to use our Draw the Lines curriculum in their classrooms. Um, sitting, uh, trying to relearn the jargon of GIS geeks and web developers, which I never really understood the first time, but um, we survived. And staying up to 1 a.m. Uh, editing event listings. Why am I doing all this? Because democracy is worth fighting for. It just is. And because I still hear my dad's voice in my ears going, if you want something, first stuff the envelopes. <laughs> Thank you. There's a little thing I have to admit, and this has bugged me ever since, so I'm going to get it out. I, you know, one of the things about the Mission Story Slam is no notes, right? Um, and I, uh, since I begin as a print writer and even in public radio, you're usually reading a script. I'm very, you know, I, I labor over the words. I'm very attached to them. So I'm trying to remember exactly how I, you know, wrote that thing up. And I left out probably the most important emotional point at all, which was to reveal in the middle of the story, you won't hear it because I forgot to say it, I didn't realize it till the third beer that night, um, was that the, the thing about my father's example is he basically dropped dead at 53. So in the middle of everything he was trying to do, I was there, he died on my 20th birthday, which is a great sort of moment of the world telling you, okay, asshole, grow up. Um, and so I decided, like, well, what is it going to mean to be a man in this world rather than a kid? And um, so I tried to figure out what it was, even when I was very young, that my father had been trying to teach me, which he didn't get to finish um, teaching me because he died so young. And that story is actually sort of trying to turn into a story, the fruits of, you know, a life of reflecting on, you know, what was it that made my father such a strong, moral man? Like, what was he trying to do? What was he trying to teach me? Because he didn't get a chance to really finish the job. So that's me. That story is me trying to finish the job for him. But one of the things that comes through in your story is uh, clearly one of the lessons that maybe you took from your father was a bit of an unending sense of optimism or just existence with an optimism, which is something that, uh, that I share. Um, is that... Do, do you end up seeing or hearing a lot of optimism when you go to Mission Story Slam or a lot of these stories? Because some of them are definitely sad, but they, they seem to find a path. I would say yeah, yes, I mean, to an overwhelming sense. Um, and I think that's partly because of the audience and the pool you're drawing from. Anybody who works at a mission-driven nonprofit has got to be um, have a ludicrously large supply or reservoir of optimism to keep doing what they're doing, particularly um, without getting wildly political in this particular moment in America. It's, it's hard to believe that um, your uh, efforts are going to bear any immediate fruit because a lot of people are rowing in the opposite direction right now. Um, so yeah, you, there's a certain stick to it in this. I also, I mean, I, I say this somewhat, somewhat jokingly, but it's actually absolutely true. Um, as I think I mentioned the story, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I am still a passionate fan of Cleveland sports teams. And um, if there's ever a training ground in optimism beyond all reason, it's rooting for the sports teams of Cleveland. Um, yes. So you're always waiting till next year. I mean, my entire life, 
<laughs> waiting till next year. Um, but it helps you focus on uh, what are the joys of the journey um, and what do you learn by trying hard and not giving up. And those, I mean, I like championships, and, you know, LeBron brought one, so I'm happy about that. But, uh, but uh, in some ways, it wasn't as thrilling as I thought because it really it made me realize that it really is just all about the journey and sticking with it and caring about something enough that um, you really care what happens. Um, and I tried to, tried to bring that to journalism. The entire time I worked in journalism, it was a declining industry. Um, but you were always thinking, well, if we just get better at this, if we just do this a little better, if we're just a little bit more innovative here, if we get better at risk-taking over there, maybe we can turn this thing around. Um, didn't quite work at the Enquirer, um, but it's interesting to see. I'm very happy to see sort of the ashes of everything that went wrong there. You know, a smaller, different, but increasingly good newspaper with a pretty talented young staff is learning how to be great in its own way right now. So there was a lot of mess and a lot of pain for a lot of people who were very close to me, you know, who I loved working with at the time. But it's a better paper than it was five years ago, much better. It, it is really interesting watching the next generation of journalists uh, find footing in a, uh, I don't know, floating around on a bunch of little ice flows mm-hmm. trying to figure out how, how to form the next era of journalism. Um, and in some ways, you know, for them, the younger journalists aren't uh, emotionally tied to glory days and the practices that worked in glory days. Um, and a lot of them, you know, in some ways, the uh, sort of lingering image on the retina of the, the days when the Enquirer was winning three Pulitzer's a year was part of what kept that team from recognizing how the world was changing around them and responding to that as nimbly as it needed to do. Because um, they just said, well, this worked 10 years ago. Let's just do it harder. Um, and what was really needed was a, a whole different understanding of where storytelling was going and where the audience was going and what the audience was going to want out of you. I do want to check in about your current work right, with Draw right. the Lines PA. And uh, I mean, speaking of optimism, how... How is your work going, and how are you feeling about the chances that Pennsylvania has of getting a reasonable map when we're looking at 2021? I am not wildly optimistic. Um, The challenges of getting um, major gerrymandering reform done in a state where the only way you can get it done is to have the very people who benefit from gerrymandering vote against their self-interest is tough. The state's you know, there is an optimistic story to be told, despite the United States Supreme Court ruling in June, which disappointed a lot of people. The fact is, even with the Supreme Court once again punting on the issue, in about, well, nearly a dozen states across the land, uh, major, significant, useful reform of redistricting has happened at the state-by-state level. But almost all those states, Virginia being one exception, Almost all the states were places that have initiative and referendum. So it was possible for a grassroots group to get organized, get a little funding, get some momentum. It's happened in Michigan. It happened in Colorado. It happened in Missouri this year, Utah, um, slightly differently in Maine. 
Um, you just get on the ballot, you work hard, and you win the ballot initiative, and you've got change. There is no initiative and referendum in Pennsylvania. You have to go through the same General Assembly. That's the problem to fix the problem. So it's, you know, it's sort of like if you can do it in Pennsylvania, you could do it anywhere. I mean, Pennsylvania is really one of the hardest nuts to crack. Uh, the other factor there is Pennsylvania, I don't know how many Pennsylvanians know this, but has the fewest, the least restrictive campaign finance regulations of any state in the union. It is truly the wild west of campaign finance. So the ability of uh, particular interests, corporate interests, and labor interests to just buy um, elections and then earn IOUs from politicians is extraordinary in Pennsylvania. So that's another thing that makes it hard. That's your uh, that's your reference to being tort- what punished for your sins right. by having a career in Pennsylvania politics. Right. So um, all that said, there are a number of very good proposals for um, reform, and there's one more big one coming. Um, David Thornburg, who I work with uh, at the Community of Seventies, the CEO there, was also the chair of. Governor Wolf's uh, Special uh, Reform Redistricting Reform Commission, they're going to come out with their um, recommendations right after Labor Day. I happen to know what the recommendations are, and it's a superb, doable um, plan for reforming um, redistricting in Pennsylvania that understands that you're never going to get anything through the General Assembly in Harrisburg that tells the General Assembly you're never going to have any say over this ever again. So it's a really carefully thought out modulated plan that would dramatically change how things are done but recognize the political reality that to get the votes you're going to have to give um, the existing lawmakers a little skin in the game. So I'm really thrilled with that plan. Um, so our efforts this fall for Draw the Lines will be to try to marshal the assets we have, um, the stories we're able to tell, but most importantly, the people aged 14 to 84 um, who we've gotten all over the state who have themselves drawn maps through our program using our software district builder um, and drawn maps that by every possible measure, including the eye test, are infinitely superior to the pieces of junk that we've gotten out of Harrisburg the last two or three times around, and to deploy them in their home districts and in Harrisburg uh, along with civic leaders to go into lawmakers and basically say, uh, we know you may not want to do the California model or the Missouri model or this, but you have to do something. You have to create the Pennsylvania model for fixing this problem. So that's what the message will be this fall. Um, will it work? I'll, I'll tell you in February whether it worked or not, but we're gonna go full bore and do everything we can. I mean, we worked very hard for the last two years um, to give people a much uh, firmer practical grasp of what the issue is and how it affects their lives. And we've motivated more than 3,000 people to try drawing their own so maps. It's an amazing program. I can't believe it. And so now, now, now the mapper, now we have to persuade the mappers that, like, you did the first thing. The second thing is you have to go talk to your lawmakers. We're going to tell them what they have to say, but we're going to say this is the urgent moment. If we don't get change between now and December 31st, it just ain't going to happen for another 10 years. So there's no one better than them. There is no one better than them to engage that conversation with lawmakers. And this is a place that, as constituents, as citizens, we can be actively involved now and not 
not solely waiting for our turn at the ballot box in 2020, correct? Absolutely. Well, your your turn at the ballot box may well be um, disappointing to the point of being meaningless when it comes to congressional races and state House and Senate races, unless we fix this. Mm-hmm. Um, only 8% of the races for the Pennsylvania State House, the lower chamber of the General Assembly, 8% of them were meaning, meaningfully competitive last time. What can we do to get engaged with uh, the work you're doing? Follow our work. Go to our website, drawthelinespa.org. Uh, there you'll find pictures of the maps that our champion mappers have done, the ones who won our mapping competitions. You don't have to draw a map yourself to have an impact. You can just look at the maps that are there and say, this one really strikes yeah, me. Yeah, they're really cool. As common sense, you know, adopt that as your own, endorse it is our language, and then contact your lawmaker. The most important thing is to realize you do make a difference, and the only thing that makes a difference is constituents, real live flesh and blood constituents of lawmakers contacting them and showing that they care. Because the number one excuse lawmakers give for inaction on things they don't feel like doing is, ah, nobody ever talks to me about that. They don't care about that. All they care about is cutting taxes. That's what you hear out of Harrisburg. So show them that you care. You can do that by emailing them. You can do that by calling them. You can do that if you're a Twitter person by, you know, messaging them on Twitter. Most effective at all is go talk to them in person at their district office, which is more convenient. If you want to make the trek to Harrisburg, it's a little harder to get in there, but if you can do it, that really shows that you care. You don't have to talk to the elected representative. You can talk to one of their staffers who works on the issue. Uh, Sometimes they're better versed in the issue than their bosses, and their opinion is very very influential. Um, This is the time to do it. There is no other time but this fall. If you wait till after Christmas or the holidays, it's going to be too late. Reform has to happen this fall. So we urge everyone to get informed and get involved and to get in the face of their elected representatives. Yeah, I think it's really easy to think we understand what gerrymandering is, thinking back to high school civics and taking a look at the uh, gerrymandering 101 that's on the drawthelinespa.org site. It is so much more complicated than it was explained to the majority of us who think we're engaged. I just feel like there's a lot of uh, thinking we know what gerrymandering is, but it's it's a pretty pretty big bug. Yeah, quickly, people tend to think of it as, oh, it's funny lines on a map, and look at that. Isn't that ridiculous? What gerrymandering is is a diabolically precise, very intentional plot to rig elections so that your vote doesn't matter. It is a plot to destroy democracy. So we need to engage in our democracy to save it. Correct. So listen, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you one last little question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our mission Story Slam event and podcast producer, Dave Winson, is, uh, I would say, annoyingly humble. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of curious what your experience has been like collaborating with him these last uh, couple of years now. Um, like any good producer, um, Dave is ferociously detailed. Uh, He plots this thing out um, to the last iota. But unlike many people who are ferociously detailed, he's also flexible, and he's not a control freak. And he rolls with things, and it's a true collaboration. I mean, I've had many things where people ask me to MC or whatever, and they hand me a script, which is not my voice at all, and and my not-so-humble opinion after 40 years as a writer is not even good at all, and they expect me just to read it. What Dave does is says, this is basically the flow and the structure we need, and these are the points we need to make. Let's work together to make this thing work. And it's a rare, rare skill. And I, I really appreciate it. It's why I keep coming back. 
well, and I'm, I have to say, I'm also really lucky to get to work with Dave as well. So thanks for uh, publicly embarrassing him for a moment by just telling some truth. That was a great pleasure, publicly embarrassing him. He's hiding behind the door there. He's not letting us see him. So um, thank you for giving us even more of your time to the Mission Story Slam and by joining us in this podcast. So I really do hope that our schedules continue to magically mesh and we will keep your perfect attendance record as our MC. September 11th. See you then. Chris, appreciate your coming down to the uh, to Indy Hall. Where we're members of the Podcasting Junto. And uh, next time I see you, it'll probably be at Yards Brewing. Until then, we'll be bringing you more interviews with storytellers from Mission Story Slam in the coming months. And like all podcasts, we really do benefit from your reviews and from sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues you think would enjoy what we're doing at Mission Story Slam. And of course, please do follow us and share on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Mission Story Slam podcast is produced by Dave Winston and brought to you by PWP Video. We are video with a mission. Find us at pwpvideo.com. We'll be back with another episode in about a month. And until then, I'm Michael Schweisheimer, and I look forward to sharing the next story behind the story with you soon. Mm-hmm.